This is section eighty eight of Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain A Biography Volume one Part two eighteen sixty six to eighteen seventy five Chapter eighty eight The Gilded Age Mark Twain did not go on the lecture circuit that winter. Redpath had besought him as usual, and even in midsummer had written Will you? Won't you? We have seven thousand to eight thousand dollars in engagements recorded for you. And he named a list of towns ranging geographically from Boston to St. Paul. But Clemens had no intention then of ever lecturing any more, and again in November, from London, he announced to Redpath, When I yell again for less than five hundred dollars, I'll be pretty hungry but i haven't any intention of yelling at any price redpath pursued him and in january proposed four hundred dollars for a single night in philadelphia but without result he did lecture two nights in steinway hall for the mercantile library association on the basis of half profits netting one thousand three hundred dollars for the two nights as his share and he lectured one night in hartford at a profit of one thousand five hundred dollars for charity father hawley of hartford had announced that his missionary work was suffering for lack of funds some of his people were actually without food he said their children crying with hunger no one ever responded to an appeal like that quicker than samuel clemens he offered to deliver a lecture free and to bear an equal proportion of whatever expenses were incurred by the committee of eight who agreed to join in forwarding the project he gave the Sandwich Island lecture, and at the close of it a large card was handed him with the figures of the receipts printed upon it. It was held up to view, and the house broke into a storm of cheers. He did very little writing during the early weeks following his return. Early in the year, January 3rd and 6th, 1873, he contributed two Sandwich Island letters to the Tribune, in which, in his own peculiar fashion, he urged annexation we must annex those people he declared and proceeded to specify the blessings we could give them such as leather-headed juries the insanity law the tweed ring we can confer woodhull and claffin on them and george francis train we can give them lecturers well, i will go myself we can make that little bunch of sleepy islands the hottest corner on earth, and array it in the moral splendor of our high and holy civilization. Annexation is what the poor islanders need. Shall we, to men benighted, the lamp of life deny? His success in England became an incentive to certain American institutions to recognize his gifts at home. Early in the year he was dined as the guest of the Lotus Club of New York, and a week or two later elected to its membership. This was but a beginning. Some new membership or honor was offered every little while, and so many banquets that he finally invented a set form for declining them. He was not yet recognized as the foremost american man of letters but undoubtedly he had become the most popular and edwin whipple writing at this time or but a little later said 
Mark Twain is regarded chiefly as a humorist, but the exercise of his real talents would rank him with the ablest of our authors in the past fifty years. So he was beginning to be discovered in high places. It was during this winter that the Clemens household enjoyed its first real home life in Hartford, its first real home life anywhere since those earliest days of marriage. The Hooker mansion was a comfortable place. The little family had comparatively good health. Their old friends were staunch and lavishly warm-hearted, and they had added many new ones. Their fireside was a delightful nucleus around which gathered those they cared for most, the Twitchells, the Warner families, the Trumbulls, all certain of a welcome there. George Warner, only a little while ago remembering, said, The Clemens house was the only one I have ever known where there was never any preoccupation in the evenings, and where visitors were always welcome. Clemens was the best kind of a host. His evenings after dinner were an unending flow of stories. Friends living nearby usually came and went at will, often without the ceremony of knocking or formal leave-taking. They were more like one great family in that neighborhood, with a community of interests, a unity of ideals. The Warner families and the Clemenses were particularly intimate, and out of their association grew Mark Twain's next important literary undertaking, his collaboration with Charles Dudley Warner in The Gilded Age. A number of more or less absurd stories have been printed about the origin of this book. It was a very simple matter, a perfectly natural development. At the dinner-table one night, with the Warners present, Criticisms of recent novels were offered, with the usual freedom and severity of dinner-table talk. The husbands were inclined to treat rather lightly the novels in which their wives were finding entertainment. The wives naturally retorted that the proper thing for the husbands to do was to furnish the American people with better ones. This was regarded in the nature of a challenge, and as such was accepted, mutually accepted, that is to say, in partnership. On the spur of the moment Clemens and Warner agreed that they would do a novel together, that they would begin it immediately. This is the whole story of the book's origin, so far, at least, as the collaboration is concerned. Clemens, in fact, had the beginning of a story in his mind, but had been unwilling to undertake an extended work of fiction alone. He welcomed only too eagerly, therefore, the proposition of joint authorship. His purpose was to write a tale around that lovable character of his youth, his mother's cousin, James Lampton, to let that gentle visionary stand as the central figure against a proper background. The idea appealed to Warner, and there was no delay in the beginning. Clemens immediately set to work and completed 399 pages of the manuscript, the first eleven chapters of the book, before the early flush of enthusiasm waned. Warner came over then, and Clemens read it aloud to him. Warner had some plans for the story, and took it up at this point, and continued it through the next twelve chapters, and so they worked alternately in the superstition, as Mark Twain long afterward declared, that we were writing one coherent yarn, when, I suppose, as a matter of fact, we were writing two incoherent ones. The reader may be interested in the division of labor. 
Clemens wrote chapters 1 to 11, also chapters 24, 25, 27, 28, 30, 32, 33, 34, 36, 37, 42, 43, 45, 51, 52, 53, 57, 59, 60, 61, 62, and portions of chapters 35, 49, 56. Warner wrote chapters 12 to 23, also chapters 26, 29, 31, 38, 39, 40, 41, 44, 46, 47, 48, 50, 54, 55, 58, 63, and portions of chapters 35, 49, and 56. The work was therefore very evenly divided. There was another co-worker on the Gilded Age before the book was finally completed. This was J. Hammond Trumbull, who prepared the variegated, marvelous cryptographic chapter headings. Trumbull was the most learned man that ever lived in Hartford. He was familiar with all the literary and scientific data, and, according to Clemens, could swear in twenty-seven languages. It was thought to be a choice idea to get Trumbull to supply a lingual medley of quotations to precede the chapters in the new book, the purpose being to excite interest and possibly to amuse the reader, a purpose which to some extent appears to have miscarried. The book was begun in February and finished in April, so the work did not lag. The result, if not highly artistic, made astonishingly good reading. Warner had the touch of romance, Clemens the gift of creating, or at least of portraying, human realities. Most of his characters reflected intimate personalities of his early life. Besides the apotheosis of James Lampton into the immortal cellars, Orion became Washington Hawkins, Squire Clemens the judge, while Mark Twain's own personality, in a greater or lesser degree, is reflected in most of his creations. As for the Tennessee land, so long a will-o'-the-wisp and a bugbear, it became tangible property at last. Only a year or two before, Clemens had written to Orion, Oh, here, I don't want to be consulted at all about Tennessee. I don't want it even mentioned to me. When I make a suggestion, it is for you to act upon it and throw it aside, but I beseech you never to ask my advice, opinion, or consent about that hated property. But it came in good play now. It is the important theme of the story. Mark Twain was well qualified to construct his share of the tale. He knew his characters, their lives, and their atmospheres perfectly. Senator Dilworthy, otherwise Senator Pomeroy of Kansas, then notorious for attempted vote-buying, was familiar enough. That winter in Washington had acquainted Clemens with the life there, its political intrigues, and the disrepute of Congress. Warner was equally well qualified for his share of the undertaking, and the chief criticism that one may offer is the one stated by Clemens himself, that the divisions of the tale remain divisions rather than unity. As for the story itself, 
the romance and the tragedy of it, the character of Laura in the hands of either author is one not easy to forget. Whether this means that the work is well done or only strikingly done, the reader himself must judge. Morally the character is not justified. Laura was a victim of circumstance from the beginning. There could be no poetic justice in her doom. To drag her out of a steamer wreck, only to make her the victim of a scoundrel, later an adventuress, and finally a murderess, all may be good art, but of a very bad kind. Laura is a sort of American Becky Sharp, but there is retributive justice in Becky's fate, whereas Laura's doom is warranted only by the author's whim. As for her end, whatever the virtuous public of that day might have done, a present-day audience would not have pelted her from the stage, destroyed her future, taken away her life. The authors regarded their work highly when it was finished, but that is nothing. Any author regards his work highly at the moment of its completion. In later years neither of them thought very well of their production, but that also is nothing. The author seldom cares very deeply for his offspring once it is turned over to the public charge. The fact that the story is still popular, still delights thousands of readers, when a myriad of novels that have been written since it was completed have lived their little day and died so utterly that even their names have passed out of memory, is the best verdict as to its worth. End of chapter 88 The Gilded Age Read by John Greenman